Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm talking with a regular guest, that's Dr. Tom Keeble, and someone I haven't had a chance to talk with for a little while because he's been getting involved heavily in the topic of the moment, which is COVID-19. Welcome, Tom, and good to hear you again. Yeah, hi there. Th- thanks for uh, inviting me. You've been getting involved with COVID-19. You've actually been doing it uh, as a method actor would. You've actually been experiencing the disease yourself, haven't you? So tell me all about your experience there. Yeah, well, I certainly had a a two-week period of feeling absolutely ghastly, like nothing else I've felt before with fevers and muscle aches and just feeling absolutely lousy uh, and pretty much all the classical symptoms that uh, are described uh, that people talk about uh, but at the same time I then tested negative before I went back to or at the time but we know that also the the, the test itself is only about 70 percent uh, positive in truly positive patients so uh, rather than a very bad dose of man flu which my colleagues uh, take the mickey out of me for I think I probably did have it but I'm, I'm very lucky and glad to say that I'm out the other side and back to good health now but I can understand why anybody who gets this badly will, will feel truly ghastly and you can also imagine that if people get it that bad if you are elderly or have other health problems you could imagine why it would really take its toll on you because as I say it's a, it's a brutal illness. I guess you were pretty fit and healthy prior to contracting it? Yeah I wouldn't quite say fit uh, and I wouldn't quite say healthy but um, I, yeah I'm in relatively reasonable shape um, and I don't have any other underlying health problems but at the same time as I say I think this is uh, as we know from our politicians and others this, this is uh, an indiscriminate virus that uh, I think we don't understand why certain individuals uh, with no risk factors get particularly bad illnesses. I think it's an immune response that we don't fully understand. And so you're back to full health, are you now? Yeah, no, I'm definitely back to full health. I'm getting up uh, with my young children in the morning and I'm actually wanting to do something useful. And uh, I wasn't wanting to do that for at least two and a half weeks. So yeah, I'm in good shape. Well, that's good to hear. And you're back to work as well, I understand. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I was, there was a lot of illness. Obviously, there's as much illness in the medical fraternity as there is in the general population. And so we had half of our consultant workforce off last week. And so I did the wards at South End last week looking after predominantly cardiac patients. But I had four patients with COVID-19 who were in the side rooms and being obviously looked after in line with all of the sort of protective guidelines and, uh, and the treatment guidelines that we have. Have your wards been just packed with COVID-19 patients? Because you see in the newspapers and the reports about how the people aren't reporting perhaps what when they've had a, a heart attack or some other condition and they're just not going to hospital. How's that affected your cardiac wards? Yeah, no, our cardiac wards are about half full. So you're right that there is, we don't fully understand this and we, I'm sure we will in the passage of time. But at the moment, we're unclear as to why. So heart attacks literally across the world, uh, this is reported in America, in Italy uh, and in the UK, have fallen 38% over the last month. So there's only, well, there's two possible explanations. Number one, for whatever reason, whether it's related to stress, whether it's related to lack of viral exposure of other pathogens, whether it's related to lack of air pollution related to no airplanes and related to no or much less cars and and travel. Maybe all of those things are what kick heart attacks off. And if you then retract all of those, then maybe that that leads to less heart attacks. 
We don't know. The other alternative and probably complementary explanation, and these are probably happening together, is that unfortunately people are very scared at the moment. And if people get chest pain, rather than what they would normally do, which is either call 999 or go and see their GP or seek medical attention of some sort, potentially they are so petrified about going to a hospital or even worrying the NHS, for want of a better word, that they sit at home and they sit with their symptoms and maybe they have their heart attack at home and it's only maybe five, six, seven days later when they have heart failure and problems that maybe they attend hospital, not with a heart attack, but with the complications of a heart attack. Although saying that, we haven't seen huge amounts of that, which is what we thought we would see. If if people come late, we thought we'd see all the complications like we used to see over the sort of two or three decades ago, but we don't seem to be seeing that either. So I think the honest answer is the numbers are definitely down in cardiac acute uh, medical problems. Same with stroke. But we don't fully understand. And I think only in the passage of the next few months will we get to the point where we understand what happened to these patients. Uh, And was it a truly decreasing incidence or actually did they just come late or did they just find their way to hospital or to, to medical professionals late and in a different fashion? And I think we don't know that. Is is that true for, well, I'm sure it probably is, for cases of cardiac arrest as well? Cardiac arrest is very complicated at the moment. COVID-19 poses particular challenges to healthcare professionals if you have someone with a cardiac arrest. Because when you have to do CPR and obviously ventilate the patient and, and breathe for them when they have a cardiac arrest, if you're not protected, i.e. having mask, gown, gloves, goggles, hat, etc., it's if the patient has COVID-19, it's potentially an extremely risky chance of transfer of that viral load to the rescuer. And so cardiac arrest has changed a lot uh, in hospitals for that reason. And so when we suspect that someone is COVID-19 positive, And we think there is a significant risk of the patient having a cardiac arrest. Obviously, at this time, we're in a hospital environment. Then we will don all of the protective equipment so that if the cardiac arrest does occur because the patient's very poorly, that we are completely ready to deliver CPR, intubate them as required and breathe for them and do whatever emergency therapy is needed, but that both the patient is safe and getting the right treatment, but As importantly, the staff are also getting uh, the right protection so that they're not unnecessarily exposed to a really high dose of viral load, which, as we've seen in Italy and and in the US and and in the UK, can expose healthcare professionals and and result, unfortunately, in their early death. Yeah, it's a very uh, difficult situation to be in. How do you... Um, tackle it considering that you you've probably had the disease do you still don all the equipment of course I mean you have to bear in mind I also tested negative so as we said before we started recording this could have been the worst dose of man flu ever recorded so um, you know I could have just had influenza I could have had another of any other viral illness and so I think if I was positive I would be more confident but at the same time I wouldn't not wear protective equipment I think that would be bonkers we we don't know enough about this virus to know that once you've had it once and you've had a good antigen response or a good immune response to it and you can measure that in your blood we still don't truly know if that's enough for lifelong immunity or even six months immunity it may be 
that you know you can get it a second time there are some case reports from china and elsewhere where confirmed cases have then had a second confirmed case in the same human being so i think that there are too many unknowns with regard to the immune reaction and the way our body handles this virus potential for viral mutation so it changes from one form to another to further fox the immune system that i think at the moment we just have to do the same thing for everybody protect the patient give them the best treatment and protect our healthcare professionals until we understand things much better and, and that's what we're doing and of course i guess what you're saying about someone contracting it twice there's always the risk that the tests weren't correct in the first instance of course of course so i but i think you know as you know and as the media is telling us there is I mean, almost all research everywhere is focused upon trying to overcome this in a variety of different ways, whether it's treatment algorithms, whether it's diagnostic tests for carriage or that you've had it or that you're out the other side. Clever new treatments, there's big lots of clinical trial going on. You know, the bottom line is this is a healthcare emergency uh, and we have to understand all of this and it's not we, we can't just understand one bit of it we've got to understand all facets of it and of course as well it's a moving target um and i think that's why collaboration and i think you know we've seen some pretty incredible collaboration certainly from physicians from pharma companies i think the two biggest pharma companies are working together to make a vaccine you know this is the sort of way that we beat this is by collaboration scientific sharing uh, rapid publication of of useful data uh, and working together literally on a global basis uh, to make this better mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely and one thing that we touched on before we started recording was the sort of knock-on effect on cardiac arrest uh, and resuscitation uh, as a general can you tell us a little bit more about that and your thoughts on that yeah well certainly you know I'm going to talk about hospital in hospital briefly, but and then I'm going to sort of extrapolate to out of hospital cardiac arrest, where generally there will be lay people uh, potentially doing CPR in hospital side. That the guidelines, as as I sort of expressed earlier, are very clear that you do not start resuscitation CPR and uh, and resuscitating the patient who has had a cardiac arrest unless your team is in full protective gear. Because the risk of, if that patient is positive, of you then getting a large viral load and becoming uh, poorly is, is relatively high. That, that's a real step change to what we would normally do. What we would normally do if someone has a cardiac arrest on our ward, usually within seconds, one of the nurses would have obviously raised the alarm, will have put defibrillator pads on, started CPR. The team will be there instantly, usually. And we'll do a resuscitation in line with the guidelines. You can only imagine that if you can't do that first bit uh, and the CPR bit until you're ready to go and, you know, putting on this equipment, as I'm sure people have seen on the television, it, it's not just a, a mask and a quick gloves. This it takes at least if you're going to, you know, in an emergency, of course, you sort of speed up a bit, but it can take minutes before you get all of your equipment on safety. And, and that's got to be done by usually four members of your team. And so, you know, that is a huge issue. The way in which we've tried to minimize uh, the effect on the patient outcomes is that if we've got patients that we are genuinely worried on our cardiac ward are going to have a cardiac arrest, and of course that 
contributes quite a lot of our heart attack patients, then we put defibrillator pads on them in a proactive way. So they can be sitting on the ward, they can be talking to us, very happy with life and they're recovering or recovering from their heart attack. But let's just say their heart function is not great and we're worried about them. Then certainly to have the defibrillator pads on and even connected to a defibrillator if we're very worried means that if they do go into cardiac arrest with a VF arrest, we can just shock them back very, very quickly. And that's the thing, as you know, that saves lives. The CPR saves uh, brain and, and heart function potentially while you're waiting for the defibrillator shock in VF or VT. So um, that's just one way. And, and that we didn't used to do, of course. And it's the same when a heart attack comes through the front door for us at the moment. We are assuming all patients have COVID-19 because we know that at least 15% of patients who get COVID-19 have no symptoms at all. And so we have to assume that everybody is, is COVID positive, because if we don't, we will get caught out. And likewise, on all of those heart attacks, we connect them to a defibrillator, put pads on. We would previously have never done that. We would only ever do that if we were really, really worried about that happening. And so there are real changes in the way we practice to try and make this as safe as we possibly can and to give the patients the best possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. Necessity is the mother of all inventions, isn't it? And Absolutely. Do you think this could... Uh, see a long-term change in some practices I know paramedic that um, attended to me told me when I interviewed him that he quite often attaches um, a defib to patients in uh, who are having a heart attack just in case they have a absolutely now and I think the other thing if you ask any senior nurse or experienced paramedic or anybody who's seen a lot of heart attacks there's also this um, sort of experience that you look at someone, it sounds crazy, but you can look at someone and go, I've got a feeling you're going to have a funny arrhythmia. And very experienced paramedics and nurses are almost invariably right. Um, there's just something about a patient's look. Sometimes, yeah, you can't even sometimes describe what it is about them that you worry about but often your intuition certainly of very experienced clinicians and nurses and, and healthcare professionals paramedics they will often tell you that this patient is going to have a cardiac arrest uh, and a vtvf or whatever and, and they're very often right but you can't write that down sometimes it's very difficult to document exactly what that looks like it's just you know an experience that you've seen patients that did this before well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because we had a, a number of questions from people in the group. And yeah, great. And uh, as, as we're on topic with the COVID-19, we got a couple of questions around that. And the first one is, are we at risk from COVID complications due to having an ICD? And I'll just expand that as well, just because we've got a or had an, an event or a, have got a heart condition. Are we at more risk? So I think we need to be very, very careful to sort of individualize, especially for those people who are listening at home who, you know, have some sort of condition. I think having an ICD per se, I'm not sure necessarily increases your risk at all if your heart function is completely normal. So let's say, for instance, you are an idiopathic patient who had a cardiac arrest for an, a, a source that we do not know that you have absolutely no medical problems prior to that or after that. And what I mean by that is diabetes and high blood pressure. 
and your coronary arteries are okay and you are otherwise a fit person, then if your heart function is good, um, I don't think there's much evidence currently to suggest that that patient, just because they've got an ICD and had a previous cardiac arrest, is necessarily at any greater risk than anybody else of that age in the population with without an ICD. I think the more challenging patients are those that have had a heart attack and then have an ICD and that the heart function is not so good. And very often those patients who have a heart pump that is not as strong will also have diabetes, will also have hypertension, will often be a little older. And so, of course, that group of patients with less good heart function, high blood pressure, diabetes and maybe a bit older definitely have a higher risk of having a a bad bout, if you will, of COVID-19, as opposed to someone who doesn't have any of those problems. So I don't think ICD alone makes you at higher risk of problems. You have to unfortunately scratch under the surface to understand why you had your ICD in the first place to work out whether the conventional risk factors for having more problems. And so if I just go through those briefly that we know at the moment, and these are not an exhaustive list, but just from the experience of Italy, America and China, it would suggest that if you're male, you have a a higher risk than if you're female. That if you have a increased BMI or increased uh, weight or overweight, that gives you more problems. If you're diabetic, you might have more problems. If you have high blood pressure or cardiovascular risks, you may have more problems. And of course, if you're older, we know that the elderly are just less able to cope with the challenges this virus gives us. I would just say as well that I think that this virus does not just just pick out old people with medical problems. And I think that is what probably scares a lot of us, particularly if you're in your mid 40s like I am. We are scared that uh, we may well run into problems um, because we're, uh, you know, we're not necessarily protected. So I think what scares the population at large is that, of course, a number of young people with no medical problems who are fit and well previously can run into severe problems with this uh, virus. Look at our own prime minister. I wouldn't describe him as fit, but he's a 55-year-old male, as far as we are aware, with no other medical problems. But I would counteract that concern by saying to people, I think the patients that get into major, major problems are a small percentage of who get this virus. And that actually a lot of it is predetermined by our immune systems, which we do not understand how mine works differently to yours, works differently to the person down the road. And why do certain individuals have this really sizable inflammatory problem and then uh, you know, immune problem that really causes trouble in the lungs? that of course then requires intensive care and ventilation and yet some people who have exactly the same or maybe they're even older with more risks and problems have literally no illness at all and that is something we truly don't understand so i think the reassuring thing to your group and the public at large is that actually there are huge swathes of the population who will get this virus and will not even know they've had it 
there will be large, the vast majority of people who get this illness will have a self-limiting illness, just like I did. So you'll feel grotty and ill for often up to 12 to 14 days. It really does drag you out. But at the same time, you will recover. And then, unfortunately, there will be a small group of patients, and I think we have to be realistic, it is a small group of patients, who will then run into more serious problems uh, of breathlessness uh, and potentially require oxygen therapy on a ward, other medications, and potentially ventilation on an intensive care and organ support in the worst case scenario. But I think it's important to reassure everybody, both the population at large and your group, that that is a small group of patients. And yeah, and it's not, you know, just because you have a risk factor does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that you will automatically have a very bad illness. And I think that's important to, to tell people. OK, that's, that's good to hear. And um, what, what are the sort of um, common symptoms of, of COVID-19 is, is having a fever? And mm. I've got a couple of questions around that. Is so someone's asking, will the fi- will a fever? I mean, it doesn't have to be associated with COVID nineteen, but will having a fever increase my risk of having arrhythmias? And then uh, on the other side is, can we do much beyond regular paracetamol to reduce that fever? Yeah, it's a very very good question. Um, the bottom line is is that in general. Any illness, whether it be COVID-19 or whether it be sepsis or, you know, caused by a bacterial infection or whatever illness any of us get, there is a likelihood that it puts the heart under a bit more strain and that it therefore makes an arrhythmia probably slightly more likely. But again, to reassure your listeners, I think the increased risk is modest. I think it's extremely modest. And so, you know, we... Before COVID-19, we wouldn't have thought about it too much. If you got a common cold or if you got a tooth infection that gave you a fever, you wouldn't really think about it too much. But I think that we've had a lot of time on our hands at home as well. And we've been inundated with information and stress and worry on the television 24-7. So I think if I'm going to answer your question honestly, I think that fever and any sort of illness is likely to very, very slightly increase the risk of an arrhythmia. But I do not think it's uh, worth worrying about. I think it's a, a very, very modest and theoretical increase. In terms of if you get a fever, the advice from the community is pretty clear that paracetamol is safe. It's a good drug uh, if you're able to take it and uh, if you take it in line with the, the recommended dosages. There is a suggestion from China and Italy that ibuprofen, which is Nurofen, which is a commonly used drug to reduce fever and muscle aches, and people often take it when they've got a a viral illness, is probably not a good drug to take. There has been some evidence to support that when people have taken it in the early stages of the illness, that they have then developed a more severe illness at the sort of day 7 to 12, which we know is when the sort of worst part of the illness is. And so there have been some guidance both from UK authorities and world authorities to try and avoid ibuprofen if you can in someone who has COVID-19. So with regards to reduction of fever, you are pretty much limited to paracetamol. Mm -hmm. Okay, sound advice there. And you you sort of touched on, on this next question, really, which is someone's asking, how do you cope with CPVT and strong emotions around COVID-19? I mean, many of us are going to be anxious and, and stressed about 
potentially catching it or members of our family potentially catching it. Um, I don't really know that much about CPVT, but I guess this question really applies to anyone, but more so in cases where perhaps stress is a, a contributing factor to a disease or a condition. Yes, I mean, I, I think I would generalise more, to be perfectly frank with you. And I think whenever we're talking on podcasts, it's it's best to generalise. You know, I think that, you know, if, uh, you, know, if you are pro-arrhythmogenic, then if you get a fever and get unwell, there is probably a very, very minuscule risk of increase of your uh, arrhythmia, but I say a very, very small increase, theoretically. Um, I think that a lot of the... There is a lot of anxiety in the population at large, be those with cardiac problems, be those with no medical problems at all. I think that I, I think that anxiety and concern is is across the board. But I think the key things to do are to educate people and are to reassure people uh, and are to just ensure that everyone knows what they're looking out for. And I think you know, the bottom line is we, we have, I think the government's done a reasonable job at educating people, at, at making people stay home, at making people not uh, socially mix, um, keeping people you know, essentially locked down to slow the spread of this and to protect uh, everybody in general. But also, of course, it protects the more vulnerable people. I mean, I suppose the only one of the important things would be, I guess, if you are deemed to be an at-risk individual from some of the risks that we talked about, so age, other medical problems, diabetes, hypertension, then I know that there is uh, suggested advice that you have a 12-week uh, isolation in essence and that you get food dropped to you and that you essentially look after yourself at home for that period of time without uh, mixing socially. I guess it's where whether you are fitting into that category or whether you are fitting into a category that can you know go out and get your own shopping go out and you know do things and take a little bit of exercise in line with the guidance and, and i guess that could cause a little bit of stress and anxiety about exactly which group people fit into possibly but i think anxiety and concern is uniform across the uk uh, and, and i think that when we are allowed to mix a bit more i think that we're going to end up with a, a fairly anxious society that will require quite a lot of support to, to get us back to, you know, uh, happy, high quality living again. Because I think this will really, really take a lot of uh, a lot of effort to get back to where we want to be. Absolutely. I mean, regarding sort of anxiety and, and stress, I guess people should be looking to do things that can reduce those like mindfulness or just um, low low uh, energy uh, things like pilates and yoga and tai chi and just sort of taking themselves away from the points of stress like don't look at the news all the time because uh, you know i think that's exactly right and don't look at the death rates every day don't get obsessed by the number of admissions to hospital that you know a poor healthcare worker has died if you look uh, and this is going to be slightly controversial don't get me wrong, healthcare workers are at uh, a higher risk, in my opinion, because we are exposed to the sickest patients who probably have the most virulent virus and the most viral load, i.e. the biggest dose because they're the most sick. Um, however, 
we know that this virus is common. We know that this virus also affects and sadly takes the lives of many young people who are not healthcare workers. And so I think, again, in the passage of time, we need to look at exactly how many healthcare workers, if you like, we would have expected to have died and actually how many do. Now, don't get me wrong. Every death of any of these patients, healthcare workers or not, is truly tragic. But I think we don't understand fully, if you like, the risk of being a healthcare worker yet. The Italy experience would suggest it is higher, as would the Chinese experience. And that protection of all of us is, is, is of paramount importance. I think there is no doubt about that. The other thing I would say, and a number of my friends have done this, you know, I'm very lucky. I have a job where I'm continuing to go to work. I'm t continuing to work with a team, which is amazing and, and, and fulfills us every day by having friends and, and colleagues around us. And we're allowed to do it. And I'm not going to lose my wage. Now, I can only I can't imagine if I was a business owner or self-employed where literally my income has gone to zero overnight. I cannot quite imagine the stresses that that would have. So I think that must be a huge stress. The financial pressures that then will come from that over the coming weeks and months must be terrible. And somehow we need to take some positive things from this and try and keep ourselves sane. And as you have said, a number of my friends have taken up exercise. You know, if we're lucky enough to have a garden, there's a whole host of exercises you can do in your garden. You know, use it as a time because a lot of people have got a lot of time at the moment. Use it to learn a new skill, a new language, some art, something that you are allowed and can do and that maybe you've never, ever had the time to do ever before. But in this rather challenging time, all of a sudden you do have time because of the very nature of what we're being asked to do. So I think somehow we need to take a positive out of this, give ourselves and our lives some focus so that when you come out of COVID-19 and it and the world does go back to normal post COVID-19 normal, then, you know, maybe you have some language skills, maybe you have some art skills, maybe you're fitter, maybe you've you know changed your, you got rid of your diabetes because you've lost a couple of stone of weight. I think somehow we have to take a health and mental improvement over this time to try and keep us all sane and come out the other side. Absolutely. And yeah, that's uh, some very wise words there. I mean, uh, it, it struck me and, and my wife blogged about it just recently that there are many parallels between this situation and, and what a cardiac arrest survivor and their family sort of goes through, really. And and, and this period is, is a great time for for us, like you've just said, to reflect on our own selves and, and work on ourselves, because I know many car, uh, many COVID-19 survivors are going to have to do, do very much the same sort of things in the coming uh, weeks and months. I think that's right. And, and of course, as well, many of the, 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 the worst affected survivors will have had a protracted intensive care stay, very similar to many of your uh, listeners. Uh, so we know that if you go onto a ventilator in hospital with COVID-19, you tend to stay on one for anything between seven and 10 days. Of course, the shorter the time on a ventilator, more likely you'll come out and do better more quickly. But yeah, this is a very significant inflammatory process. And, and certainly you do not intubate people quickly and get them off the ventilator quickly as a pro protracted intensive care stay. Not only that, uh, the, 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 I think the worst thing about COVID-19 is the lack of information for family members. Now, 
you know, as you know, when you have a cardiac arrest uh, and you are asleep on intensive care often for the first few days, your family can generally be with you as much as they want in the pre-COVID-19 era. And we're very flexible with, uh, you know, historically with visiting and you can spend as much time, you can phone whenever you like. We really do try and look after the, the family's well-being as best we can. If you contrast that with the current situation where you have a COVID-19 patient on an intensive care who does not get allowed to see anybody ever uh, unless they're essentially dying and, and it's their last you know, few hours on the planet, that is, for me, an incredibly scary time, both for the patient if you're awake or if you're pseudo-conscious or semi-conscious, but it's it's truly awful for the family who are sitting at home Uh, often waiting for a call at the end of the day or the end of the consultant shift to tell them how your loved one is once every 24 hours. So I think there are contrasting and different, there are similarities, and I think there are also differences. uh, But at the same time, I think both uh, have very challenging psychological aspects, which, yeah, I agree with you, for the the foreseeable months and years, we're going to have to deal with and improve our services for those patients and families. Mm -hmm. Like like we are trying to do for the cardiac arrest survivors. Maybe I need to start up a a, um, Facebook group for COVID-19 survivors as well. And you and Boris can join. Yeah, but I don't think I'd be allowed in because if I went for the world record of COVID-19, I wouldn't be allowed in because I had tested negative, didn't I? So, well, um, well, that, oh, well that's true. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a man flu, a man flu uh, support group. <laughs> I think it is important to be reassuring to our groups, actually, because with all due respects, if you're going to get it and you're going to get it bad, you're going to get it bad. But the chances of that happening is very, very small. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. We have to put it into context. Well, that's been an absolutely fantastic journey into uh, your life of having COVID-19 and also um, how patients and heart patients should react and how we can understand it a little bit more. And I think you've uh, certainly um, put our minds at rest as well, as much as we can. So thank you very much for that, Tom, and uh, hope to speak to you again soon. No, my pleasure. And everybody, please uh, take care, uh, stay safe and uh, safe, and uh, keep yourself to yourself. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. And I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website southerncardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Southern Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe and I'll speak to you next time.